0: name we pray. Amen. The Jericho Road was notoriously dangerous for travellers. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level and the Dead Sea near Jericho is 1,300 feet below it. So it's a descent of 3,600 feet in little more than 20 miles. The road was almost designed for bandits with its many caves, curves and defiles. In a letter dated AD 171, two pig dealers complained to the government about being assaulted and robbed on it. And in the 5th century, Jerome writes, that it was still called the Red or Bloody Way. As late as the middle of the 19th century, travellers had to pay money to the local sheikhs if they wanted to be protected uh, by the bed- from the Bedouin. And a guy called H. V. Morton writes in a book published in the 1930s, That he told a friend who intended to drive down to the Dead Sea that he should be back before dusk because a brigand called Abu Jihad had a habit of blocking the road, stopping cars and robbing the occupants. Apparently he'd once held up 14 cars in a row before escaping the police. He had a price on his head of 250 pounds, not an insignificant amount back in the 1930s. So this wasn't a route to be traveling on alone. And of course the inevitable happens to no one's surprise the traveler is beaten up robbed and left to die but this isn't a story of the consequences of foolish decisions it's much more than that in scene two of the parable jesus delves deeper jewish priests served in the temple in jerusalem for two separate weeks in the year and when they weren't on duty many of them stayed in jericho so one of them was probably on his way to jerusalem for his tour of duty when he comes across the badly beaten victim barely glancing at the man he doesn't stop to help in fact jesus makes it clear that he goes out of his way to pass by on the other side next a levite comes by the blooded man surely he will stop nope he too passes by on the other side this would undoubtedly have shocked those listening to the story both of these guys are religious the priest would be officiating at temple sacrifices the Levite helping to maintain the place Of all people likely to show compassion surely it would be one of them but both go out of their way to avoid the injured man so why Probably, I think, for one of two reasons. A common trick for the bandits was to set up a decoy by having one of them lie down and pretend to be injured, only to spring an ambush when a passerby stopped to try to help. But perhaps more likely, they wouldn't stop because their job required them to be ceremonially clean when reporting for temple duty. Now, a modern version of this might look like this. I don't know whether you've seen this in the media over the last uh, 10 days or so. This is a picture of climbers on K2, the most dangerous mountain in the Himalayas, 8,200 meters high up. Again, it was in the the media about 10 days ago, last weekend, and so on. A top mountaineer was forced to defend herself against accusations that her team climbed over a dying Sherpa as they pressed on to the summit of K2. And you can see in about the middle of the picture, uh, there's, there's somebody kneeling down and the rest are stepping over and pressing on. They were trying to secure a new world record. While some argued that there was nothing that could be done, others claimed that a Western climber wouldn't have been left to die like that, and that such scenes were unthinkable in the Alps, igniting a row about how local Sherpas are treated in the Himalayas. Some of you may have heard of Rod Little, who writes, in the Sunday Times he can be quite caustic and hard-hitting but he wrote an article about this in last week's Sunday Times and he said this this as the headline when you step over a dying man you leave part of your humanity behind and then having a large team on K2 with her allowed the leader to delegate the moral issue at stake quite interesting comments Now, like getting to the top of K2 in record time, there can be no doubt that for the priest and the Levite, their two weeks of service in the temple would have been really important events in their lives. And like the climbers, they probably felt genuine sorrow, even perhaps pity for the man lying beaten up on the road. But amongst a long list of regulations, touching a potentially dead body would have made them unclean for seven days, automatically shutting them out from their temple duty. Now at this point the expert in the law who'd started this whole conversation his heart must have been sinking because he probably knew that's exactly what he would have done but Jesus isn't done and things are about to get worse in scene three he unveils the unlikely hero of the hour but a Samaritan John chapter 4 of John's gospel tells us that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans and they avoid traveling through Samaria Hence the wary, if not hostile, reception that Jesus himself actually received when he did so in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, the chapter before this story. The quarrel goes back 450 years, which is a long time to hold a grudge. In 720 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel, with its capital in Samaria, had been destroyed. Most of its inhabitants had been carried away. Although they still, some still stayed there uh, they, and, and they then retained their, most of their Jewish religious beliefs, those who remained intermarried with the invaders, with the non-Jews, which was considered to be an unforgivable sin. They were seen as half-breeds, the following generations losing their racial purity and the right to be considered as Jews. Then about 140 years later, the su- Southern Kingdom suffered the same fate, with people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego being carted away to Babylon, just south of Baghdad. They, however, kept firmly to the religious law and in about 440 BC they were allowed to return to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, you may remember the stories, to rebuild the shattered walls of the city and the temple. But in doing so they refused the help of the people from the northern kingdom who asked if they could join them. Now this may all seem a bit bizarre but we should remember the bloody religious conflict between Protestants and Catholics in 16th century Europe, the Hundred Years' War and of course the divide in Northern Ireland even today between Catholic and Protestant. We need to see that in the context of those things because it shows how deeply so-called religious people can hate others. Jews viewed Samaritans with suspicion and distrust, if not downright loathing and hatred, and they applied the word Samaritan to all those who were seen as lawbreakers and renegades to their religion. Indeed, somewhat ironically, in John's Gospel, Jesus himself is actually accused by the authorities of being both a Samaritan and demon-possessed, in another exchange about their false interpretation of the law. Which is why Jesus displays his genius in choosing a Samaritan to be the hero and not the villain of the story. A Samaritan who goes well beyond just checking on the victim but whose compassion moves him into action. At some cost and inconvenience, he ensures that the man is cared for, cleaning and binding up his wounds. He carries him to an inn and he pays for his stay. So the story could end there, but Jesus isn't quite done. Moving into the closing scene and the aftermath, he goes on. The story started with two questions, which Jesus circles back to. The lawyer was concerned with correct theology, but Jesus shows that theology alone is insufficient. Head knowledge is useless if it doesn't lead to action. So he prods even deeper, and he poses the killer question to the lawyer. Which of the three involved do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Interestingly, the lawyer can't even bring himself to admit that the Samaritan was the better neighbour. Indeed, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So he simply replies, the one who had mercy on him. And no doubt he leaves pretty disgruntled when Jesus tells him to go and do likewise. So, what do we learn from all of that? Well, it's easy, of course, to look down on the lawyer and dismiss the failings of the priest and the Levite, but not quite so easy to look into the mirror and examine our own lives. Whilst we may have good intentions and want to be the hero in such stories, the harsh reality is that all too often we, too, look for loopholes and excuses to pass by on the other side, to only do what is most convenient to do. The way the good Lord works sometimes is interesting. As I was preparing for this sermon, Christine and I were driving uh, on the way to Aldershot, and we passed by a guy who was on the uh, grass, having obviously having collapsed. But he was with a policeman, and presumably I think with his mother. But as we drove by, I found myself thinking, oh, it'll be all right, the police are there. And we carried on. Coming into church this morning for the nine o'clock service, I was running a bit late. And as I was hurtling down the road to get here, I suddenly found myself thinking, what happens if I see another person lying by the road? I'm an important chap, I've just prepared a sermon. There are gonna be lots of people here this morning, including lots of guests, I need to get there. Luckily, I didn't pass anybody and I got here on time. But a good intention never acted upon is worth nothing in God's kingdom. And Jesus calls us to do better than just pass by on the other side. What matters to him is the action we take in the form of the help and support we give to those in need. The Good Samaritan story is all about our hearts, not biblical knowledge, and certainly not about rules, regulations and prejudices. Secondly, we're called to help those in need even if. We need to be very careful about labels, especially labels branded into us by our prejudices reinforced by the media being a follower of jesus means that there is no foreigner or stranger someone whose culture and race are different than ours is not by definition an enemy we are called to help even if the person doesn't look like us speak our language or believe in our god jesus doesn't ask anything of us that's based on the world's standards we are called to reach out in love and kindness towards those that the world tells us To ignore or to hate, not to turn our backs on them. And we're called to help even if it's inconvenient. Like the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan had things to do. He had a life to live, places to be. He had obligations. Helping the hurt man was certainly an inconvenience, but he put his life aside for the moment and did what was required to make sure that the man got the help that he needed and we're called to help by those in need even if they haven't asked for it even haven't asked us directly for that help and even if there's no reward for doing so there's no obvious benefit for the Samaritan to help this guy helping someone in trouble is not about what's in it for us now like so many sermons that people like me preach this is all very easy to say But I have to tell you that I've struggled, as i prepared this sermon, for all sorts of reasons, but most of you will realize straight away what I'm about to say. I struggle to know how we should respond to the current asylum crisis. And I certainly struggle with the idea of simply opening up our borders to illegal asylum seekers, especially young men who can afford to pay thousands of pounds to people smugglers plying their criminal trade. Can we just show the picture, Kate, of the uh This is a picture of three Syrian children in a camp in Idlib, in northwest Syria. I have it by my desk, uh, on top of my photocopier, which is right next to my desk, in my study. And I've had it there since uh, since uh, 2021, January 21, which is when I cut it out of the day newspapers. I can't be alone in being deeply moved by these young faces. At least, it says, we have each other. They remind me of my own time in Iraq and leading my brigade in building and running camps for tens of thousands of refugees fleeing the conflict in Kosovo with their possessions in a few plastic bags. Looking after them for several weeks opened my eyes and rammed home how lucky we are to live in the UK and the West. But is it really possible to see every single person with whom we share this world, no longer as a stranger, a foreigner, or an alien? Should we really see people we have never met before, like these three young people, as our neighbours, regardless of which town, city, country, race, or culture they belong to? God's answer to these questions seems to be unequivocally, yes. Yes, we should. Jesus' teaching cuts to the heart of those sorts of questions. Our neighborhood is as wide as the love of God, and our brothers and sisters are to be found in every community on the planet. Which is why people like uh, Marilyn Pritchard responded to the call to help out in Syria with the appropriate name charity Samara's Aid, which most of you will know we support as a church. Which is why people like Sharon and Bill Blythe are working in Moldova and why many others in this church are involved in doing things more locally. And that said, I don't think Jesus is saying that solving global migration problems is my responsibility. But that it is my responsibility to keep my eyes open and not hope or assume, like the couple on the bus, that someone else will help when I see someone in need. I have to stop the bus and do something. As Terence, the Roman poet, said, I must count no human being a stranger. And as Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, what men needed more than anything else is a hand let down to lift them up. If a man falls into a pit and can't get himself out, it's no good saying, poor fellow, you must have been very foolish to get into such a mess like that. Your trouble has been brought upon yourself, and I'm sorry, I can't do anything about that. Or, that it must be God's will that you are there. So I'm very sorry, but I can't get you out of the mess you're in. But if it is His will that you are able to get out of the pit, then I may be able to give you some advice and rules and regulations that will stop you from falling into the pit. Next time. That's the religion of the priest and the Levite. And such religion is meaningless and dead. Seeing us in the pit, Jesus says nothing. He acts. Not just holding out a hand, but climbing down into the pit to lift us out, sacrificing himself in the process. Jackie Pullinger once said that too many Christians have hard hearts and soft feet. So we must pray for God to soften our hearts and harden our feet. Church should be an oasis from which we come to drink before individually and collectively moving back out into the world to hold out our hands and pull people out of their pit, getting out of our comfort zone, taking risks, and helping others in unplanned, random acts of kindness. If you feel that there's little that you can do individually, then remember the story of the little bird lying on the ground with its feet in the air. A man came along and asked, Little bird, what are you doing there, lying on the ground with your feet in the air? The little bird replied, I heard the sky was falling in, So i thought i would do what i could do to stop it the man laughed scornfully and said your little feet won't stop the sky falling in to which the bird replied one does what one can one does what one can this parable is probably the most practically demanding of all jesus's parables the question he was asked is a very simple question who is my neighbor And his response, his answer, is equally simple if devastating in its simplicity. Anyone who needs your help is your neighbour. He tells the expert in the law and he tells us to go and do likewise. Keeping ourselves to ourselves is not an option. There is more of Christ in someone with a hot heart and no understanding of the Bible at all than in someone who knows their Bible backwards but is cold-heartedly religious. Having faith in Christ is not enough. We need to live it out. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says these famous words, which many of you will know. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something for drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And when we ask, Lord, when did we do any of these things? He will simply reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I, for one, want to be blessed by the Father and take my inheritance in the kingdom. And I trust that you all want that too. So let's get back out there and put our faith into action. Amen.